Hey, this is Kaz, and you are listening to Two Broke Watch Snobs, the only watch podcast where one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. You have made it all the way to episode 178, and your ears do not deceive you. I am alone. I am recording this week's episode last minute by myself. My better half in broke watch snobbery cannot be with us today. But in truth, when the cat's away, ooh. Ooh, the mice will play. That's right, you guys are stuck with me for, I mean, however long we're going we're to be here for. I think last time I did an episode solo once. Uh, man, it must have been in the 50s, episode 150-something or other. And uh, I talked mainly about like Soviet watches that I had my eye on. Um, and this episode is no different, although a bit of a different twist. Uh, I will be focusing today on um, basically the five Soviet watches. Um that everyone really should be aware of, whether you're a Soviet watch collector or whether you only have ever heard of the Vostok Amphibia. I think in order for us to kind of just have an appropriate grasp on horology and just the, 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 the state of the vintage watch market, people should be at least basically aware of some facets of Soviet horology, so um, that's what I want to focus on today. Five pieces which I feel encapsulate uh, watches that everyone should be, you know, aware of. So there's going to be a lot of history in this. I'm going to do my best to keep things organized. Um, it's going to be uh, five watches that are... I mean, for, I know other Soviet watch collectors listen to the show, and they're, you know, I think some folks might feel like some of these are too general, or some of them aren't like you know, orological neckbeardy enough, some of these Soviet watches. But again, the idea with this show is if someone out there is remotely interested in Soviet watches or if they just want to have, like, a decent understanding of, you know, basic uh, top-level models that you should just know of in order to be informed about Soviet watches, you know, these five do encapsulate that, you know, in, in my uh, you know, in my opinion. So, um, and just in, in case you're a newer listener, because you've gotten a huge uh, influx of new folks recently. Hi, how's it going? Um, one of the things, if you haven't noticed yet, with, you know, the two book watch knobs here as a watch podcast, and really, I guess, this is just like a watch blog, you know, heading over uh, to com, is that we, or my, one of my particular collecting niches has always been Soviet watches. You know, I have a very strong passion for Soviet horology, um, obviously very short-lived, 1917 to 1991-1992. Um, when I say Soviet watches, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Soviet urology. I'm not talking about Russian watches, even though there's obvious bleed-over because... Um, and I'll get to this in more detail, but um, Soviet watch brands from 1917 to 1991-1992, they were owned by the government. So once the government was gone... A lot of the watch brands basically just dissolved or they, you know, went private and they were purchased, um, you know, so on and so forth. And the ones and the Russian watch brands that we hear today that were around uh, during the Soviet Union, those are the ones that basically were purchased and now are under private ownership. They're not owned by the government anymore. So that's uh, brands, a lot of brands which I'll talk about today. So Vostok and, you know, Raketa, um, they used to be owned by the government. Now they're not so. So when I say Soviet urology, it's just important for, for everyone to know that's really only like 70, 70 or 75 years worth of existence from 1917 to the uh, Red Revolution to 1991 slash 1992, um, you know, the fall of the, uh, of the Soviet Union. So 
I say that only clarification of this because people ask me all the time. They're like, oh, that's so cool. You know about Russian watches. Yeah, I don't know a fucking thing about Russian watches. I know about Soviet watches. <laughs> I don't know what's happening in modern Russian, uh, uh, you know, urology. Obviously, a lot of the brands I just mentioned are still around, but in terms of like, you know, um, oh, they're the guys out in Moscow now, the Konstantin Chaikin, uh, uh small shop, making really, really high-end, very expensive watches, really, really cool stuff. Um, that's a Russian brand that I don't know a fucking thing about. Uh, I know about Soviet brands, so... That's what the show's going to be about. I'm going to kind of go down basically the history of the Soviet Union and tie each of these pieces to a specific point uh, chronologically, like in the history of the Soviet Union. So starting in 1917 and then going basically all the way into the the 80s slash the nine early 90s. Um, so it's going to be kind of based on a kind of based on a timeline. Um, I'm going to do my best to keep things organized. Uh, everything I talk about should be on the website also, and I'll let you guys know, uh, you know, in the show notes, like article links and stuff like that that, you know, I've, I've written about. So I think it's been a while since we've done a um, Soviet Union horology, you know, show. Uh, and so now that Michael's away, I can do whatever the fuck I want. I can talk about my nipples for an hour and a half, and you people have to listen to me. I mean, you, I mean, you, know, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have to. You can just turn your turn your uh i don't know radio like we're on the fucking you could turn your you could turn your computer off but then what will you listen to nothing your loved ones god forbid so keep keep this on you know we're gonna have we're gonna have a lot of fun it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty interesting not sure how long this is gonna turn out to be but it's just gonna be me talking by myself so um but even though michael is not here even though michael is not here we have to honor tradition guys this is me and you all right we have to do an audio, an audio wrist check. Everyone at home, would you like to do an audio wrist check with me? Here, I'll give you guys three potato to just yell into your listening devices what you're wearing. One potato. Two potato. Three potato. Wow, that's cool. Great wrist check, guys. Uh, for this reason... <laughs> Everyone's just turning their fucking radios off. Uh, for this week's episode, um, ironically, I'm wearing a Soviet watch, but it's not one of the Soviet watches that I think people need to be aware of or people need to know about to have a general understanding of, uh, you know, the vintage Soviet watch market to Soviet Union neurology. I am wearing for this week's episode, episode 178 of the Two Book Watch House podcast, Sans Michael. My better having Two Book Watch snobbery. I am wearing my Slava Medical. Uh, this for me is was a grail. A grail piece for a long time. Not particularly expensive, but they're uh, pretty rare to find in, you know, A, clean condition, and B, non-Franken condition. Um, for reference, when I say a Franken watch, and this is incredibly prevalent within um, Soviet watches, uh, and you'll learn why as I get into the history, the 75 flash pan history <laughs> of Soviet Union watches, um... Uh, when I say a watch is Franken, I mean that the watch is functional and it might look kind of right, but they've made it basically work by just cannibalizing parts from other watches, um, which can get really, really weird if you're trying to date a watch, figure out its approximate date of production, or if you're trying to determine, you know, uh, if all the parts and pieces uh, look good. Um, so those two things work against all Soviet watches as a modern collector if you're looking to get into Soviet watches as a vintage watch kind of niche but it works particularly hard against the Slava Medical just because of the other fact that it's also um, it's also pretty rare so 
Uh, just some background, it is a mechanical pulse meter. It is the only mechanical pulse meter that the Soviet Union had created. It uses the Slava 2428 caliber movement, not to be confused with the Eta 2824. Huh. Um, I don't know how prevalent this is with other vintage watch uh, niches, but because again, all I know about is vintage uh, Soviet vintage watches, but anytime, and you're going to hear me say it a lot this episode, anytime I say a movement caliber, uh, number so you know the boss dock 2209 or the raketa 2906 the first two numbers 26 or 22 or in this case of my slava 24 as in 2428 those are in reference to the diameter of the actual movement itself so the slava medical is equipped with the slava 2428 movement that means the movement width you know the, not, not the width but the diameter that the, the you know from one end to the circle, the other end of the circle, it's approximately 24, uh, 24 millimeters. So, uh, to quip with the, the, the Slava 2, uh, 2428 movement, I like this movement a lot because it's really quirky and it's really cool. It's a double mainspring barrel. So, traditionally in a watch movement, you'll have uh, a mainspring barrel movement. It's a basically um, like a little metal, metal cylinder with uh, the spring inside of it. And for a mechanical watch, it's that spring which you wind when you're winding a watch you're literally kind of winding that uh you know that spring inside the barrel that's what holds the uh, the energy sometimes what can happen depending on how the engineering of your entire movement is working is that in a traditional mainspring barrel watch and this is really only for like older vintage watches like modern mechanical watches you know don't really have this issue or they do but you know it's engineered to a point where it's not really a big deal but sometimes the issue that can happen and this was the issue with soviet watches is that um, as energy is released from the spring and as it goes through the gear train and as it's regulated by the escapement and then as you read it on your actual watch face, um, sometimes the speed with which uh, the energy is going through the movement is faster when the spring is tighter or slower when the spring is you know, looser. So as energy is lost and transferred out of the main spring barrel, it will kind of uh, go through the movement at a, 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 you know, a slower rate. So the reason I bring that up is with the uh, mechanical pulse meter, the Slava Medical, um, the idea with this watch is that you're taking someone's pulse. You know, uh, the, the pulse meter scale, there's two of them. It starts at 12, goes to 6, and the second one starts at 6 and goes to 12. Uh, the idea is accuracy. I need to make sure if I'm doing battlefield triage, which I would never do. I'm a, I'm a desk diver, if you will. I don't even, I barely even have any dive watches anymore. I'm purging the collection. Um, but the idea is if I'm taking someone's pulse, whether I'm in like a hospital or under fire and duress or some shit, uh, I need it to be as accurate as possible. And so, um, you know, in the 80s, the 70s slash 80s, when, the, when this movement was coming around, the idea with two mainspring barrels is that we're dampening the impact of losing speed as one mainspring barrel, you know, uh, releases energy. So it's distributed across two mainspring barrels with the idea that it would be uh, more accurate. Is it more accurate? Uh, really depends. <laughs> if you're comparing it to other Soviet movements at the time, yeah, I think it's fucking super accurate. Um, but the reality is also, you know, with the Slava Medical, it's not the only... Um, Soviet pulse meter that existed there were other Soviet pulse meters they were just quartz um, and they used quartz because obviously quartz is way more uh, accurate and reliable than, than a mechanical movement uh, just as an aside because I feel like we need to say this once every episode 
if you're getting into watches or if you find your perspective changing on watches or or anything around that and you have this idea that a mechanical watch is more accurate than a quartz watch quartz watch when i say quartz watch i mean a battery powered watch you, you gotta just fucking extract that notion from your mind and just cast that shit to the wind quartz watches are more accurate than uh mechanical watches and they're more reliable in most cases than mechanical watches sorry um so that's why uh, and so other other soviet pulse meter examples are uh, there's a raketa quartz pulse meter uh, there's a look, I believe it's luck or look, I can never say it. L-U-C-H, look, luck, look, L-U-C-H. Um, oh man, there's one other one I can't remember. The Ricotta pulse meter actually looks really cool. Uh, well, some of them look really cool. There's a version of it where the pulse meter scale is uh, blue. Um, my Slava Medical, it's mechanical, so um, obviously it's not those quartz watches, uh, but it's all red. The dial is red, there's kind of two tiers, the scales are red, it's got the the... I don't know what it's called. I always I always make a point to try and Google it before I get on fucking air with you people. But the logo, the doctor, the doctor logo with the snake and the staff, it looks like mine particularly looks like a snake uh, sipping out of a martini glass. This is a professional podcast, guys. But it's got that on. It's red, and I have my uh, Slava Medical in particular on a red uh, suede custom uh, strap that I had from EA Leather. Um, really, really cool. I, the whole package is just perfect with the strap, has a dark brown leather keeper with the red on the case and just the polishing on the actual, uh, the red on the dial and the and the polishing on the case and like the red lollipop second hands. It's like the full package to me. Um, when I first learned about Soviet watches, uh, I was immediately enamored with that. I don't even remember, God, where did I first see that? I saw this on Reddit. I saw this watch for the first time on Reddit and I'm like, I'm like, yo dog, what is that? And so I kind of just fell into this, um, this sinkhole of just trying to get this watch. And honestly, it took me about three years. It took me about three years to find a good example um, at not a crazy price. I ended up paying, oh man, 250 bucks for this thing, which is a lot. That's a lot of money. It, it, for Soviet, that's the other really cool thing I love about Soviet watches. You can be a vintage Soviet watch collector and not spend a lot of money. You can get watches that have incredible stories around them tied to you know a country where they tried this form of government and it was very early proto stages and just you know geopolitical factors were working against them like most soviet watches excuse me that exist um you can tie them to a brand that had an interesting impact in just like a country's government so um and it's super cheap i mean really anything under 100 bucks is appropriate for most soviet uh vintage watches obviously that precludes um or excludes the Slava Medical, um, and other other options. Most, and I'll talk about this in depth as well, and because one of these is, is covered in my uh, five Soviet watches you need to be aware of, or however the hell I'm going to word this. Um, most Soviet chronographs are going to be pretty expensive. Uh, the Soviets had chronographs that had a pretty interesting history. wasn't ever ever really a nut that could crack appropriately, or on the same level as their as their other uh, you know European counterparts, but uh, Soviet chronographs are usually always going to be more than a hundred bucks. Um, some early Vostok amphibias, which I'll talk about as well, will be over a hundred bucks. For, but for the most part, if you got like under a hundred bucks to spend and you want a cool vintage watch that you can make as a conversational piece, definitely look into Soviet uh, vintage watches. But um, 
yes, back with the wrist check. So that's what I'm wearing. Slava Medical. Thought it'd be fun to wear it. Again, this is not one of the watches I think people need to be aware of um, to just have a good foundation in, uh, in you know, Soviet, uh, Soviet watch history. Soviet uh, Union horology. Orology. Um, yeah, cool wrist check. I miss Michael. I miss Michael already. Do you guys miss Michael yet? Michael was last minute indisposed. Everything's fine, but he'll be back with us, I hope, uh, next week. But uh, here, before I get to the main topic, you know, five watches that I feel like, you know, everyone needs to know about. Uh, five Soviet Union watches that everyone needs to know about. Just want to do some quick housekeeping items. Uh, definitely keep checking out the twobookwatchlab.com website. Um, we're trying to post stuff and, you know, uh, just personally in a lot of our lives right now, things are causing us to not be able to post as much as we need to on uh, the website, but do keep checking it out. It's a lot of fun. Also, a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about today in regards to the Soviet Union and, you know, vintage Soviet Union horology, you know, will be on the site. I'll talk about the links and everything like that. Um, in addition to that, check out our YouTube page. We have uh, a series on there called the TBWS Writer's Room. It's actually a lot of fun. Um, we all get on this video Skype call, uh, me and the rest of the, or usually, it's usually me and the rest of the TBWS writer staff. Um, there are a couple episodes where I'm not there, I don't think. But basically, we get a topic, um, and it's proper wristwatch bar talk. You know, obviously, the two-book watch knobs, we always say it's a, it's a it's wristwatch bar talk. You know, the two-book watch knobs is you, after work, getting beers with your friends, shooting the shit, and, like, maybe you'll talk about watches, like, once or something. Uh, basically, we did that in video format with not just Michael and I, uh, you know, and the TBWS staff. So go and check those out. Those are on the YouTube page. Um, in addition to that, thank you so much to everyone that has been uh, contributing to us on our Patreon page. Uh, it's like patreon.com slash knobs or something. I'll have the link in the thing. And it's all over our website as well. So um, I have noticed a few folks have jumped on there recently. That does help. People have asked us, like, hey, are you guys even on Patreon anymore? Because we haven't talked about it. I mean, that's that's by design. I feel bad talking to people about stuff that will help us cover our overheads and help us compensate ourselves for the time we put into this. Because Michael and I and the rest of the TBWS staff, we all have other regular jobs, um, very demanding jobs, but the TBWS uh, is really a passion project, and so it's, you know, sometimes it's just, it's just tough, you know, up super late and doing all this stuff and everything like that, but that said, I always feel really bad when I have to bring up, like, the Patreon page or our Amazon affiliate program, um, because obviously you guys just want to hear about watches, and you guys just want to, like, hang out with us and, 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 and shoot the shit, and, you know, hear us talk about like fun stuff and so i usually don't like dedicating too much time uh to talking about that stuff however people have been asking if donating uh through pay not, not, not donate but being becoming patrons through patreon helps us or if using the amazon affiliate link stuff helps us it it definitely does i mean that's huge you you guys you guys and your love for what michael and i have built and this crazy community of foul-mouthed horology enthusiasts um this thing we've created you know uh it's able to basically be alive because of you guys who have felt so incentivized to to support us by going to the patreon page and becoming patrons or using the amazon affiliate link so I'll just let everyone know that stuff does help. It's huge. It helps out so much, especially in regards to... Um, ooh, how can I phrase this? We're not like other watch blogs. Uh, no one no one really likes us. No brands no brands really like us. Anytime a brand reaches out, we'll have a few words. It'll be like, yeah, this is cool. And then like at a certain point, the brand's like, yeah, you, we can't. 
we can't work together. Because usually they'll hear the show. You know, they hear the show and be like, wow, these, these two were watched and I was cursed like motherfuckers, man. Um, or we say terrible things. We're quite, we're quite crass. Uh, especially if Drunk Kaz shows up. You guys are lucky I'm recording noon. I'm recording noon on a Sunday afternoon. If this was like, I don't know, 5 p.m. on a Tuesday, dude, Drunk Kaz would be here. If any OG TBWS listeners, you guys know what I'm talking about when I say Drunk Kaz. Um, so we don't get reviews. Like when we have to review a piece, we usually had to buy it. Um, we usually had to buy it. <laughs> Or, or if someone has it, look, one of the TBW's contributors has it in their uh, in their collection. So, um, if you see us review like a three or four hundred dollar watch, we probably had to buy that watch out of pocket and then just kind of figure out what to do with it afterwards. Uh, that's why when Michael and I say we're really behind in our giveaways, we're really behind in our giveaways because we have we reviewed a lot of stuff and we're kind of just sitting on these watches and just. It's time. It's time that we just don't have. Um, you know, we still have to keep the show going, keep the site going, everything like that. So, um, what the hell was I talking about? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you guys, you know, if you go and you become a patron on uh, our, our Patreon page, patreon.com slash two broke watch knobs, two, I'm Ron Burgundy, um, that does help. In addition to that, honestly, the easiest thing you can do, um, and people love it, is using our Amazon affiliate link. If you're not familiar, basically the Amazon affiliate link is a method through which you can do your normal Amazon shopping. Like if you and your if you and your spouse or if you and your loved ones are like watching TV and you're just like, oh fuck, I totally forgot to put, you know, I, f- I forgot to get like a spatula or like oh I forgot to get uh, I forgot to get the fucking um, shuttlecock for our badminton set. I don't know what the fuck people do with their free time. Um, I'll, let me just place a quick Amazon order. That scenario will allow you to get what you need, whether it be a shuttlecock or, or a screwdriver or whatever the fuck regular people buy these days. I don't know. Um, that scenario is perfect because you can get what you need. You won't pay any more money and you're supporting TBWS. Basically, what happens is if you use our affiliate link to place your Amazon order, Amazon essentially sends us a finder's fee because uh, they think you ended up on Amazon because you know the two book wash knobs you know sent you there. When in reality, this is this is fucking planet Earth. So roughly all of the seven billion people on this marble have heard of Amazon, um, but it's tracked through the the actual you know little little like like uh, URL that we use. So if you go to the two book wash knob site. Um, you know, if you go to the homepage or if you go to like a particular article, you'll see, yeah, this thing here says TBWS buying guides and list on Amazon now. If you click that, it will take you to our Amazon, I feel so stupid saying it, but this is what Amazon calls it, our influencer page. We're not influencing you guys, okay? The only thing, the only things that we can possibly influence is, um, I don't know, bad weather or whatever, whatever sort of apocalyptic negative thing I could think of. So insert negative joke here. There, that's good. I'll get, I'll get past that now. Um, but if you click that, it'll take you to our, influ- our influencer page. And if you just like click on a product, like a random watch, but then if you just go to the search bar and type in whatever you were going to buy in the first place, that's it. Like you can use our Amazon affiliate links and not even buy what the fuck the link is for. And in that scenario, you are supporting the two book watch numbers because they because Amazon basically sends us um, a finder's fee. And uh, yeah, again, that does, you know, uh, basically keep the show alive. We're, we're, we're essentially crowdfunded, which is why I love TBWS because I don't have to worry about a brand like 
like working with us or if they buy like a sponsored spot or whatever. Um, I don't have to like tiptoe around saying, wow, this brand made a fucking horrible watch. Like I, I would rather have someone like, like sneeze black pepper in my eyes than fucking buy this watch. I don't have to worry about as I punch my mic. I don't have to worry about saying that if at the same time last week that watch, that watch brand like, you know, took out ad space on the site or, or, or whatever. Um, so I like the fact that we're crowdfunded. It allows all of us to kind of hang out and be cool. So uh, that's all. That's all I'll say. I don't want to. I've already talked way too much. You know, just about this fucking Patreon, Amazon affiliate stuff. Um, but it is important. I, you know, I do have to keep that in mind, just so I can, just so we can keep the lights on. But yeah, basically, if you have any questions around that, the Patreon thing, or or Amazon affiliates, um, you know, you can let us know. Uh, you can hit us up uh, via email tbws.contact at gmail.com. That email again is tbws.contact at gmail.com or hit us up on instagram um yeah 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 yeah. instagram at two broke watch knobs um you know go and check us out and uh let me see what else oh yeah one other housekeeping item if you do follow us on instagram um and if you do want to help the show out without necessarily having to spend like money because obviously especially if you're like in the u.s right now it's just it's it's a little insane, and so people are right, rightfully so, being very price conscious, or maybe they're kind of preparing for quote unquote the worst, and you don't want to spend too much money. That's fine. Like, don't spend. I don't want you guys to spend money. Um, like, that's I, you don't support the two book watch knobs if it's putting you in financial like distress. That's fucking stupid. Like, keep your money. But if you do want to support the show without spending money, and if you are on Instagram, um, just like our stuff. You know, like our post, uh, share our post. Um, at the same time, also another way to support the show without spending money is if you have a website or if you have a blog, or even if you're if you have another social media account like like Facebook or whatever, share our links or link to the website. So in this case here, I'm going to be talking way more than you guys want to hear about motherfucking Soviet watches. If you wanted to link, you know, the history of the Vostok watch factory piece that I have on the site to like your website or your social media account, that helps. That helps a lot because that helps just spread the word. You know, more folks are aware of TBWS. There's also a technical component in that in regards to um, how easily people can find us on Google. Uh, I work as an SEO for my day job, so I'm not going to fucking bog you guys down with all that shit. But there is a technical factor around uh, sharing a link. It doesn't... Oh, God damn, I said I wouldn't do it. But if you do share a link on your Facebook or whatever, social media links don't really count for SEO. But if you have a blog or a website or something like that, that does count for for, for, for SEO. Search engine optimization. Ugh, my day job. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what was I talking about? So yeah, there's plenty of ways to support the show. If you want to support the show financially... Jump on our Patreon page or use our Amazon affiliate link to do your normal Amazon shopping. And if you want to support the Dubert Watch Knobs um, and you don't want to spend money, which is fucking awesome, please don't spend money if you don't have to, like supporting the show. Michael and I are not that cool. Uh, you can share our links, you know, for, from the website, twobookwatchknobs.com, uh, or you can do, or, or just, and or just like our stuff on Instagram and comment. Uh, because that just helps the um, that helps Instagram know that hey people like this I'll show it to more people and then we'll spread the word. So bam, housekeeping, bam, roasted. <laughs> um, let me see here. Did the wrist check? Okay, you guys want to talk about some Soviet Union watches? 
Well, you all better have said yes, because that's what's about to happen. So the Soviet Union, so any discussion that you do in regards to the to Soviet Union, vintage Soviet Union pieces, is inevitably tied to the government. The Soviet Union government, 1917 to 1991, officially slash 1992, just because it takes time, because you can't just flip a switch and turn things around. Um, it was December of 1991, technically when it fell, but obviously, you know, that shit just not just, not just going to fix itself overnight. Any discussion you do with Soviet timepieces, you have to understand, we're also talking about the government. And I say that because Soviet Union, and this is, uh, there's some points to just understand here, and this is one of the big ones that I think people really get confused about. Soviet Union brands, so dial designations, so, you know, uh, 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 you know Raketa or, or, or Kama or fucking Zvezda or, you know, Luke or Pobeda, any of these, like, names, you know, Polyot, Australia, uh, uh, Stermansky, any of these dial designations that existed, the name on the dial, that's not really a watch brand in the same sense that Oris is a watch brand. Oris is like a company and like it's owned by individuals, everything like that, blah, blah, blah. During 1917 and 1991, the government owned the Soviet watch brands. Um, no brand was really privately owned. Um, that causes confusion in that you could have a Pabetta, you could have a Pabetta watch, Pabetta is a, is a, a, you know, for folks, you know, who were around in the Soviet Union, most most people wore Pabettas, because Pabettas were uh, really, really popular uh, post-World War II watch, um, and so uh, they made a lot of different models based off of a relationship, which I'll, which I'll talk about, you know, with, um, with, with Lip, a French manufacturer. Uh, Pabettas were everywhere, however, more than one factory made Pabettas. So watch brands aren't necessarily tied to factory locations. They were more kind of tied to the government and the government allow, and the government kind of shared the, the specifications and the technology with different locations around the Soviet Union to create uh, to create watches. So, the, however, there are exceptions to that, but they didn't really start occurring until after 1961, um, which for any space buffs who are aware in regards to this Soviet Union discussion that I'm having is when Yuri Gagarin, 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 there you go, I think that's how you say it. I apologize, I don't know Russian. Uh, could have fooled me. Um, that's when uh, Yuri Gagarin went up uh, first man in space. He rode a fucking washing machine that they tied a bunch of, you know, uh, 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 bottle bottle rockets to. <laughs> uh, and so after that, that was obviously a huge moment, you know, a swell of pride for the Russian people. And so after that is when a lot of brands started, a lot of factories started uh, calling watches they produced at their particular factories an individual name. Uh, an example is Vostok. Uh, Yuri Gagarin's you know, machine, washing machine with bottle rockets, that thing was the Vostok one. Uh, Raketa is another, another example. Raketa means, just means rocket. Um, so those are the exceptions to, you know, brands like uh, Pabetta or Seconda, you know, who were manufactured in multiple, um, you know, multiple locations. Uh, so yeah, Government owns all the watch watch brands, you know, uh, and sometimes some watch brands are made in different factories 
which can get confusing, you know, with trying to figure out what model is what, but uh, all factories, uh, probably up until, like, uh, post-ish World War II, um, all factories had their own different, excuse me, uh, you know, factory stamps that they would stamp on the movements. So the first Moscow watch factory has its own stamp. Second Moscow watch factory has its own stamp. In the early years, factory... Um, Oh, I always forget it. That's so funny. Factory, uh, do, 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 do. it's the Vostok factory. Factory 835, uh, when it was in Kistopol and before it was Vostok, they had their own uh, stamps. So for some vintage pieces, you can use the stamps to identify, you know, um, which actual physical location the watch was made. Okay, cool. So uh, I'm still I'm still trying to talk about the things that we need to understand before I even get to the five watches <laughs> we're going to talk about. This is gonna be a lot of fun. Actually, this is fun. I was kind of I was kind of afraid to record alone, but you know I'm in my element just talking about Soviet watches. So, luckily, I was able to spin this up on the fly. Um, let me see here. Ba -ba 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 -ba. Soviet watches did not start. Did not really. So the Soviet Union started in 1917. However, Soviet Union watches, as an neurological sort of competitor to the rest of European neurology, didn't occur until 1930. So there was this sort of nether zone of existence between 1917 to 1930 where um, watches were still being made in the Soviet Union. Uh, however, they were being made from parts and the remnants of some European brands who were forced out of the Soviet Union uh, and left all their shit. Um, you know, they were being made of those parts, essentially, um, I could totally be wrong. I probably should have looked this up before, but uh, Moser and Co. used to be in St. Petersburg. Old motherfucking brand. Um, uh, now they're really quirky. I love what they do. They, 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 it's very, they're very tongue-in-cheek, and they're very aware of the fact that the Swiss watch, the Swiss watch market is just crazy, and they have the freedom to do whatever they want because they're fucking Moser. Uh, they used to be based in St. Petersburg, and they were one of the watch brands that was basically forced out of uh, Russia once the Soviet Union started. Um, so between 1917 and 1930, uh, and I'll talk about what happens in 1930, Soviet watches didn't exist. However, Russia was still making watches based on old parts left over from these other, uh, high horology, um, you know, uh, watch brands that just basically had to leave their shit, um, you know, pack up your shit and leave. Um, hopefully I triggered some glass jaw, glass jaw, uh, song tracks, uh, in people's minds there. Um, shout out to anyone on Long Island. But, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, but the thing is, those watches weren't, the watches that were being made in Russia before the revolution, and then even like the 13 or so years after the revolution, they weren't really capturing the ideal of what the Soviet Union wanted to, to capture. This is the other point that's really important to remember before we get into the discussion of the five watches you need to be aware of uh, within Soviet Union, you know, vintage urology, is that the whole idea of the Soviet Union came about after the fact that Russia basically didn't have a renaissance. Russia never had an industrial revolution. And so... The 1900s came about, and here are all these European unions with A, a middle class, which is fucking huge. The idea of the middle class emerged with the idea of the merchant class, and the merchant class didn't start in the rest of Europe until the Renaissance. So Russia didn't have a fucking Renaissance, not in the same sense as the rest of Europe. 
So they never had those uh, initial kind of budding seeds for the idea of the middle class. And in addition to that, Russia never industrialized. Um, a lot of it still operated on like feudal serfdom. You had nobles who owned land, and uh, but the nobles had no idea how to fucking farm their own land. They just existed on it, and but they allowed serfs who were basically like not slaves, but um, it's a form of mm, not, not indentured. It's I'll, I'll fuck it. I'll call it slavery. Just make my life easier. It's basically a form of slavery. If you're not if you're not familiar with the idea of serfdom, the idea of serfdom is this: noble owns a plot of land. He has no idea how to, you know, harvest crops, go grow crops, you know, raise livestock. He has no idea how to actually work the land. Uh, he will allow um, people to live on the land, you know, serfs, uh, non-noble working class people to live on the land, to farm it, to operate it, to make it profitable, blah, 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 all that stuff, to create stuff that they need to eat. And then also, I think in like small situations, like selling it. But for the most part, you know, the, these little serfdoms that were existing across the nobility in Russia, they were just creating stuff for themselves. Um, and it's very agricultural, you know, like motherfuckers out there with like scythes and shit. Okay, that shit basically occurred into the 1900s. Oh no, there was a serfdom. The serfs were freed. Oh, I wrote this on the site. Let me figure this out. Uh, you guys know it's really weird when. You can Google something that you wrote as a reference for a point you're trying to make. That's just a really, really, really weird feeling. Because we've been doing these for fucking four years now, three or four years. Russian World Watches Prologue. No, it's the Russian Watches. There we go. Pre Revolution Russian Clockworks. Clockworks. Parentheses. Huge swinging clocks. I thought that was. Uh, <clears throat> I thought that was a funny thing to say. In retrospect, it might not be the most appropriate way to uh, get herself out there. Eh, who gives a shit? Um, 1861. 1861, serfs were uh, emancipated. Um, serfs were, yeah, serfs were emancipated, and some of them in certain situations were also granted land. Um, but they were only granted land with uh, loan. They were loaned money, and they were the idea is that they would eventually, like, you know, pay the government back this money that they were loaned. The only problem is serfs weren't allowed to have money. So let me just paint this picture for you. This is this is all important, trust me. The 1917 revolution occurred because the fact that serfs were freed, serfs knew how to do all of the farming and all the agricultural stuff. Um they were freed and they were given their own lands. Well, they were they were given lands, but on loan. That's loans that they had to pay back. However, serfs couldn't have money, so they couldn't pay back the loans. So they started defaulting on those loans. That's one facet of it. The other facet um, is that after the serfs were emancipated, some were allowed to stay. I guess on like the plots of land they had if they had paid rent or some shit. Um, but for the majority of the part, the nobles had these plots of land, which now all of a sudden there are no serfs. They they still don't know how to work the land, and so all their crops just basically started to die. So serfs could not get their farms up and running, and feudal lords who uh, lords feudal feudal nobles lords I have no idea uh, who you know had this land that was being worked by serfs before now wasn't being worked, and all of those crops were dying. Um, there were a couple famines. A fuck ton of people died. The government didn't understand 
how to appropriately industrialize, how to appropriately accommodate a population as large as Russia had. What the government could do at the time was throw some sweet fucking parties. Um, <laughs> which, which, caused, which obviously caused a lot of friction because uh, that just caused the wealth divide to just grow. You, you had serfs or freed serfs who were starving, who were dying, they didn't really have land, they couldn't go back to their feudal lords because they couldn't, you know, those the situation just didn't allow them to. Um, famines were happening, but at the same time, the nobility in Russia was basically still partying it up. You know, they were creating these palaces and they were creating they had you know very fine other european craftsmen making like little tchotchkes and knickknacks that they would give to each other as gifts and shit like that you know so um all of this was occurring and it became very clear as the years went on and as a lot of the other as a lot of people that lived in russia the russian citizens the non-nobles were seeing is that the rest of europe has industrialized the rest of Europe has essentially, you know, it wasn't called the middle class back then, but a class of people who aren't noble, but who can afford uh, to buy what they need and who also live in a system that can provide them with what they need. I don't know how to farm. However, I have money to buy stuff from this person who does know how to farm. And that person then makes money. And that person can then spend, spend that money on what they need from someone that who knows what to do that they don't know how to do. So that's the idea of the emerging middle class in conjunction with the Industrial Revolution. I wish I could see how many people have turned off the podcast by now. <laughs> Barely talked about watches. Uh, and so, uh, but, that, but Russia didn't have that. Russia didn't have, at the time, middle class industrialization. So... They wanted it, but the government and the the way the kind of aristocratic and noble system was created wasn't able to provide them with that, and they didn't really the noble class didn't see it as you know a thing. Whew, fast forward some years, nineteen seventeen, uh, Red Revolution. I think the best way I can describe the revolution to you guys is um, for anyone that's ever seen the animated movie Anastasia where, uh, you know, like, nobles are pulled out of their homes and, like, like killed and everything like that. That's basically what happened. Uh, nobles in the aristocratic class, uh, well, they were kind of just pulled out of their homes and killed um, or forced out of the country. Uh, it was literally a, a revolution, a riot, an uprising. These, you know, the working class of Russia basically said... And came to the conclusion that the only way we're going to support ourselves and the only way we're going to industrialize and create the stuff that we need to survive is if we get the fuck rid of our current government, our current aristocratic noble class. And so that's basically, you know, uh, that's that's what they did. Uh, 1917 and uh, October, October, obviously, October Revolution, Red Revolution. Huh. And born on the idea of communism. The reason that's really important is that communism, in that sense, back then, was based on the idea of, okay, clean slate, the government's gone, we need to, A, industrialize, B, create our own products. That was probably the biggest thing, because at that time, Russia was dependent on other countries to do what Russia couldn't do. You know, in terms of like engineering and in terms of like tools and manufacturing and things like that. And in some cases, fucking food, obviously, because they didn't have any back then with all the famines and the plagues of blagging. 
<clears throat> oh, Simpsons. <laughs> um, so that was the second thing. They had to make their own, you know, uh, shit. They had to be self-reliant. Um, and then the third part of communism, which is the one part that everyone kind of focuses on, it's the idea that we will structure a government that will never allow someone to go without something they need ever again. Everyone's equal. There's no upper class. Because remember, these people are all coming from the idea that the upper class just exists to party and shit on the working class. So that's the idea. You know, that, 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 So these people were very angry. And that's those are the three you know, really, really, really big things. Um, starting from a clean slate, um, you know, we have to industrialize. That's the first one. Second one, we have to be self-reliant on our own product productability. We have to make our own shit. And the third facet is... Um, all right, if you're, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, everyone will get what they need in equal measure. You know, you are not better than this person, so everyone gets equal. Um, just to preface this before I get angry fucking emails, obviously it didn't work, guys. The idea, <laughs> the idea makes sense on paper in the same way doing your own electric, like, like electrical work or doing your own plumbing on paper might make sense, but when you start fucking doing it, you end up just getting wet and having to call an expert, all right? So before you guys send me angry fucking emails, I understand that. Don't worry. Whew. Okay. 1917. Uh, da, 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 da. Yes. Uh, uh, October Revolution occurs. And then, like I said before, um, they were still making watches from 1917 to 1930 from the remnants of those non-Russian uh, manufacturing and small, small watch operations that, um, you know, existed. However, they started to realize very quickly that this is one of the aspects of our industrialization that we can totally just knock out of the park. We shouldn't have to buy watches and clocks and mechanical movements and everything to make a watch. We shouldn't have to buy that shit anywhere outside of Russia. We should be able to, outside of the Soviet Union, we should be able to make everything we need for watches inside the Soviet Union. So from about the 1920s um, to to, to, to 1930-ish, uh, they tried. They tried, you know, figuring out what they could do. You know, some some specific individuals gave it a shot, uh, but nothing really ever was on the scale that they needed. They needed to industrialize quick. Some countries had decades and decades and decades and decades of time worth uh, to industrialize before Russia. So we need to industrialize quick. We need to just somehow purchase or inherit an entire watch operation and just bring it here and make watches. Which again, sounds great on paper. The only issue with that is uh, around the 1930s, when we're 19, late 1920s, when this was starting to, when when the Soviet Union was starting to kind of come into its own, people started, were starting to kind of, other European nations started to become threatened, essentially, by their capability as an industrialized uh, force, you know, making stuff, industrializing, making tools, and making products, sending it out, making money, you know, that threatened other European nations. So no other European nation wanted to help the Soviet Union get their watch manufacturing operation up and running. Um, you know, they tried, um, I think for a while, excuse me, they tried something with Germany, or they tried something with Switzerland, and the Germans blocked it, or the Swiss blocked it, or vice versa, or both, and vice versa. It doesn't matter. The fact is, they could not industrialize their watchmaking capabilities with the help of their European, um, 
you know, uh, neighbors because that would threaten the European neighbors' you know own watch industries, and that's that makes sense. That's logical. I mean, you don't want to help basically your competitor. That's stupid. Um, however, <laughs> a hero rose to the occasion uh, in the incredibly unlikely place of uh, Canton, Ohio. So shout out to Canton, Ohio, USA, USA. Um, uh, in 1930, there was a pocket watch manufacturer in, in Canton, Ohio, uh, called, oh, fuck, Duberhampton, Duberhampton, uh, um, and they were basically going bankrupt, and they said, because it's, it's, it's pocket watches, at that time, pocket watches were basically, uh, I think starting to fall out of fashion and everything like that, blah, 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 or something, I'm not entirely sure, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a Duberhampton expert, guys, so, sorry, Canton, um, but basically, 1930, they, uh, you know, declared bankruptcy, and they're just like, we're for sale. Everything is for sale. Everything must go. Um, it was probably on no one's fucking radar that delegates from the Soviet Union government would show up to Duberhampton in Canton, Ohio <laughs> to look at their machines and to talk and to broker a deal. And broker a deal they did. Uh, and so I will say definitively that the Soviet Union uh, watch for Soviet Union urology would not exist if it were not for Canton, Ohio. <clears throat> so shout out again, Canton, Ohio. I've never been. I've never heard anything about it. I heard about it for the first time <laughs> from Soviet watches. Uh, so that's what they did. Moscow, uh, Soviet Union purchased the rights to Duberhamden. They purchased machines. They purchased all the remaining material. And they had all that shit sent to Moscow to start what is called the first Moscow watch factory. It's the first ground-up in-house watch manufacturing uh, operation uh, in Russia, or in Soviet Union, you know, Soviet Union at the time. Um, but the really interesting thing, and this leads me to my first watch that I want to talk about. Uh, the first watch I want to talk about it, it, that I feel like everyone, and it, only, it only took me 50 minutes, guys. Jesus, Jesus Christ. The first watch that everyone should be aware of just because of its historical significance. And oddly enough, they're kind of easy to get. Um, it's, the watch, it's the watch movement that they started making for the first time in the first Moscow watch factory. It's basically called the Type 1. It's a pocket watch. Uh, I always forget if it's got the small second hands or not. Yeah, it's got small seconds. It's a pocket watch. It has a small second hands. It's basically a 100% copy of the pocket watch that Duber Hampton was making in Canton, Ohio. So I love this as just a basic, hey, you should be aware this piece exists. And if for some reason you want to own it, you can probably get one. It's pretty, you can probably find maybe not one of the early 30s. Type one examples, uh, T Y P E dash one. Type one. It's, they're, they're not very. They weren't very creative with their names. Um, not until the sixties. It's probably pretty easy to find one. Probably not from the thirties, but dude, they made the they made the type one movement. God for decades. Um, I love this movement because if you do find an early example, you can find some early examples still with like Duberhampton stamps because they just bought all their materials. The Soviets just bought. All of the fucking materials. So, like early 1930s ish uh, examples, you know, could potentially still have uh, the stamps, but 
if you are authenticating one of these and if you're not sure if it's an appropriate type one, uh, the signature hallmark, or at least what the Duberhampton pocket watch was known for, was um, this kind of double forked uh, bridge uh, look at approximately six o'clock that's holding the escapement. So the whole escapement mechanism, you know, you know the, the, the wheels and the fucking teeth and all this shit, and the hammer and all the crap, it's being held by two protruding bridges um, that, yeah, I, I guess they call it a forked, a forked bridge. I'm not entirely sure, but that's how you know, uh, you know, it will be a type one that's at least a type one movement. It'll probably be franken because it's fucking, I mean, like finding an unfranken type one's probably gonna be pretty expensive. Uh, if you don't care, which is totally fine, then you know it's not a big deal. But everyone needs to be aware that if it was not for Duberhampton uh, being bought by the Moscow watch, uh, by, by being bought by Moscow and starting the first Moscow watch factory and producing the first ever Type Ones, um, you know, Soviet Union wouldn't have had uh, watches, at least as we recognize them. They probably would have bought something somewhere else, but, you know, it just happened to be this. So, the Type 1, it doesn't really have a name. Um, you can, different factories called it different things. If you just type in, like, Soviet Pocket Watch Type 1 or Soviet Watches Type 1 into eBay, you'll probably get a bunch of examples. You can look for the first Moscow Watch Factory uh, logo on the dial and on the stamped on the movement, actually, because this was far enough back to where, you know, they still did that. Um, it, how, can, how the hell can I describe this stamping logo? It's in like a diamond shape. It has a one, a kind of curved character. And basically uh, to like other like like Western folk like me, it looks like a 34. So a one, a curly character, and a 34. That's the best description you're going to get from me, guys. I'll, I'll try to have a link to a, to an appropriate example. But um, that's the first watch that people you know need to be aware of. Um, the other really remarkable thing about this fucking watch is that it occurred in the most zany possible circumstances so uh moscow bought duberhampton bought the machines bought the patents bought the materials but there was one big issue russia had no wash technicians they didn't they, they were barely industrialized they had you know technicians but they didn't have very skilled technicians and so uh they also brokered into the deal i think it was 20 or 21 people from duberhampton in canton ohio to spend two years approximately one or two years in Moscow, tr uh, setting the machinery up and training the Russian, uh, the Soviets on how to use this machinery. Fucking hilarious. Uh, the Soviets didn't speak uh, English, and uh, the Ohioans didn't speak Russian. However, <laughs> uh, the people in Ohio, that particular area, huge German migration, so they all knew German. And the Russians knew German, so they just spoke in German. Which I don't know why is fucking hilarious to me. Um, <laughs> it didn't, they had no other way of communicating except one language that was, uh, you know, not their mother tongue, essentially. So, uh, But if you just think about those circumstances, all these different things that could have gone wrong and all these things that could have caused it to just become, like, to just not work out, none of that happened. It all went well, and the Type 1 went into production. So that's the first watch you guys need to know about. Okay. Okay, what year am I at? I'm at 1930, so I'm going to go year by year, cover some interesting milestones that's going to lead me to the next watch I'm going to talk about. Um, and the next watch I'm going to talk about is, again, related to the first Moscow watch factory. I'll talk about why. So in 1930, um, oh, I might have actually gotten this mixed up. It's possible. In approximately the 30s, uh, 
based on the success of the first Moscow watch factory, a second Moscow watch factory was, was created. Keep that in mind, because that's going to be very important for Vostok, bearing in mind that Vostok is not located in Moscow. Also, in 1935, so jumping five years, in 1935, the Soviet Union made its second most crucial uh, deal, business deal, that helped jumpstart uh, Soviet Union horology. Um, it formed a relationship with LIP. L-I-P. LIP is a French watch manufacturer. Uh, I think they're still around. Um, but they were bankrupt for a while, which is why they sold... Uh, technology to the to the Soviets. Keep that in mind, because that is very important to to uh, to you know Raketa, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, let me see here. Ba -ba 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 -ba. I'm gonna jump. I'm gonna jump from 1935 to about 1959. I'll go back a couple of years in a minute. I want to stick with the first Moscow watch factory, the second watch that. Most people should be aware of, you know, with Soviet Union neurology, vintage Soviet Union watches. It's uh, it's the Strela or Strelia, I've never known how to say it. Three zero one seven. It is the first fairly well of fairly well distributed, I should say, Soviet chronograph. The chronograph for the Soviet Union was such a mindfuck. It was so difficult for them to appropriately create one that was you know reliable in large enough quantities because remember they weren't industrialized they weren't like other nations that had hundreds of years or more in some case no but more than more than 100 years so some nations had two or three hundred years um to kind of get the idea of complications really nailed down at this point the soviets are just are just kind of hammering out three-handers or two-handers with a small seconds uh, at six at six o'clock, three or four, three o'clock or nine o'clock, which is easy. Those are easier to, to, to manufacture than central located three handers. Um, the chronograph is always such a difficult thing for them to nail down. They've tried other chronographs before 1959. I'll talk about the Strela 3017 in more detail, but there were other attempts at Soviet chronographs in the 40s during the, the uh, you know the time of the first Moscow watch factory they tried a uh, mono pusher chronograph built or based ooh here's where it gets interesting so there's two types of ways the soviets acquired new watch technology they either purchased it appropriately which is the case which is what happened with the Canton Ohio folks Duperhampton or they um they acquired they acquired it they basically stole it. Uh, they either bought it or they stole it. Um, you know, reverse engineered it, what have you. Um, and so, specifically with the chronographs, there's a bit of like confusion around it. So in this first, in these first two cases, well, actually in this first case, I think it's pretty clear. So the first Moscow watch factory, the first shot at a chronograph that didn't really work. It was difficult to produce. It was based off the value uh, 61 caliber. Uh, I think that was just too early for them to try, you know, and nail down. The first Moscow watch factory had only been around for about a decade at this point. Um, it was a single mono pusher chronograph. It just didn't, the, the pieces weren't there, you know, to have it work appropriately. Um, I think, and I could totally be wrong, so please reserve your angry emails. Uh, I think Russia may have actually worked on that one in concert, in concert with Valju. Like, you know, they were, like, that was, that was a proper collab collab um 
there was a chronograph after that and before the Strela 3017, which I'll talk about, which is the important chronograph here. Um, it was another monopusher chronograph, but the button for it was at four o'clock. It was made in the second Moscow wash factory in a really small, like really small quantities. Um, doesn't really have a name, but it was based off of a pocket wash movement. I'm going to fuck this up, guys, because I've never heard of this. Cortebear? Uh, the Cortebear 620? My cat's here. My cat knows the answer. Cortebear 620. C-U-R-T-E-B-E-R-T 620. Uh, and just to differentiate that from the previous Valjuice 61 monopusher that happened in the 40s, uh, the Soviets just stole. Just stole this one. Just stole this design for the Cortebear 620, which I think was in like a Rolex pocket watch. Or in like old long jeans models. Uh, if I remember correctly. That didn't work. Uh, they couldn't make it in large enough quantities, and again, they just weren't where they needed to be technologically to make it work. Enter 1959, and the Strela, or Streya, I don't know how you say it, 3017. The Strela 3017 is the first widely available uh, mechanical chronograph that the Soviets created in conjunction basically with the space race. The reason the Strela, the Strela 3017 worked um, and uh, really was used for, oh man, 10 or 15 years? 10 or about 10 or 15 years until the uh, Polyot 3133 came around? Um, it's just, dur- it's just during the space race. So the, 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 the Strela 3017, it's gorgeous. If you go to eBay, you type in Strela 3017, this is one of the examples of a Soviet watch, which is going to cost more than 100 bucks. Um, they're also really frankened. They're also really faked. Um, they made a bunch of fake dials in the 90s, and so it's, you have to really know what you're looking for to get a 3017 in good condition. So I would encourage you to just not fucking do it. Uh, but you should be aware. Um, you know, that 3017 represents the Soviet Union's ability to finally create like a somewhat reliable chronograph uh, that they were able to produce on the scale that they needed to. Basically, it went to military officers, it went to people that were behind controls that needed to measure things with precision, and it was based uh, on the Venus 150-152. Venus used to be a movement manufacturer that was eventually uh, bought or combined with Valju. Um, so the, the Venus 150 slash 152 movement is, uh, I think they actually worked with Venus. I don't think they stole this one. <laughs> it's possible. It's really hard to tell these days. Um, so the first Moscow watch factory made the Strela 3017. The Strela 3017 is based off of the Venus 150 slash 152. Interesting tidbit of history. Uh, this is a similar cl- similar class of Venus movements that ended up in the uh, Chinese um, chronograph, the uh, the seagulls. I don't know. The, I don't know the, the ST something or other. But um, the, that 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 Chinese chronograph um, that was a that was being used, uh, you know, I guess in the sixties or seventies. I'm not too sure. I'm not. I'm not a Chinese watch. Uh, Chinese military watch expert, but basically that chronograph and the Strela 3017, I would call them cousins. I think that's appropriate because they're both based off a similar family of Venus movements. So, to recap, <laughs> you guys think? Do you guys think? I, I, I'm, I don't, I don't know if anyone's even listening anymore. But I'm gonna keep talking because I got another half hour. Uh, type one, the first watch that you need to be aware of is the first Moscow watch factory Type One, based off the Duber Hampton um, pocket watch double forked, 
Uh, it's really a milestone in Soviet watch history. The second watch that you should all be aware of is the Soviet Union's first widely able to be distributed chronograph, 3017, Strela 3017. You can also see really cool examples. Um, they also uh, offered the 3017 movement out of the first Moscow watch factory under the Seconda dial uh, designation, Seconda, S-E-K-O-N-D-A, Seconda. Um, that's basically a dial designation they used for watches that were exported uh, to the West, or I think in some cases, no, 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 I was going to say Poland, but that's not right. Or it might be right, I don't know. But basically, Seconda was a dial designation that was exported out of... Um, out of Russia, not necessarily always out of the Soviet Union, or I don't think, uh, just out of Russia. But um, there's a there's a version with like a black dial, and it has this cool like green, disgusting looking loom. Uh, the Soviets never never got loom down. Uh, it's actually really funny. If you're looking for a Strela three zero one seven with the black dial, that's really cool. It looks very avi like 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 um, like spacey, like you know uh, like space racy. Uh, you can tell it's fake if the loom looks great. <laughs> uh, a lot of a lot of the uh, so on like on like my Polyot three uh, or not on my but like on like Polyot thirty one thirty threes another type of Soviet chronograph the loom looks like shit looks like looks like looks like cupcake icing looks like Michael J Fox tried to cupcake like try to ice a fucking cupcake or frost a cupcake with his fingers you know what I mean that's an inappropriate joke I take that back um, so the loom looks really bad that's the market quality weirdly enough so if you're hunting down Soviet chronographs first thing I'll tell you don't look for good loom. Or don't look for any loom at all. Some of these uh, 3017s, jumping back to the 959 chronograph, some of these Australia 3017s didn't even have loom. Um, but that's another watch out of the first Moscow watch factory that everyone should be aware of. First Soviet chronograph that they were able to reliably create and distribute to you know uh, military officers and folks behind panels who needed to have like precision, you know, uh, precision timekeeping and shit like that. <clears throat> Let's see here. Type 1, Australia 3017. I got three more watches to talk to you guys about. Let's talk about Vostok, because there's two watches in Vostok. Um, and people have probably heard the names of these two watches, but you have to understand, again, just the fucking zany-ass history that fell into place for Vostok to be Vostok. So the two other watches that you should be aware of uh, as a very loud motorcycle drives by my, drives by my window is the the two other watches you should be aware of within vintage you know soviet horology it's the Komanderski, Komanderski, c-o-m uh, there's different ways of spelling i'm gonna fuck this up c-o-m-a-n-d-i-r-s-k-i-e Komanderski, uh commander russian uh, you know by Vostok commander um but don't search but if you do if you google search don't google search commander you'll get a whole bunch of crap uh commander ski commander ski uh and also the vostok amphibia which is um the Soviet kind of the 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 Vostok amphibia was such a huge fucking deal because as difficult as it was for the Soviets to crack the chronograph, it was equally difficult difficult for them to crack the two hundred meter dive watch. Because remember, they didn't they didn't want to keep buying watches outside the Soviet Union, you know, for 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 their navy and for their military and for precision instrument folk and everything like that. They wanted to make the shit, and so they had, but they didn't have a lot of expertise so they didn't have a lot of uh technical know-how so they had to get creative and the Vostok amphibia represents uh really incredible creativity i think we actually did a whole fucking episode oh my god on the Vostok amphibia i'll link it if i can remember to link it um 
where I go through the whole history of the Vostok Amphibia, so I won't go too much of that here. I mainly want to talk about how Vostok uh, started. I might have talked about it a bit in that episode, but um, but it's all good. So remember when I t- said back in 1930, to keep this in mind, the second Moscow Watch Factory? Yeah, we're going to talk about the second Moscow Watch Factory. So it is really important to know that the... The second Moscow watch factory is technically Vostok, but Vostok wasn't located in Moscow, and both the second Moscow watch factory and Vostok operated at the same time with 500 miles of, of you know, land between them. It's really, really, really complicated. It's actually super interesting, and uh, it involves World War II, so, so stick with me here. Um, the second Moscow watch factory started in 1930. There was already a factory there. I think they were making clocks technically, but with the success of the Type 1 movement and the machinery that they were able to purchase from uh, Duberhampton and Canton, Ohio, they were able to take that and, uh, you know, build the, or kind of retrofit the second Moscow watch factory to, to make the Type 1, uh, you know, as well. And so from 1930, that happened. But then in 1941, um, you know, World War II and everything like that happened, uh, Germany invaded Russia. Excuse me. And because of that, um, you know, many watchmaking operations, many watchmaking factories the government was running. Remember, the government owns these factories. They had to switch gears, and basically they were making, you know, munitions at this point. So the second Moscow watch factory after 1941, uh, I think they were making fuses and, like, timers for, for like, ordnance and munitions and, and, and things like that, you know? Excuse me. Um, in 1941, in October... Oh, yeah, I wrote it down here. Thank, thank, thank God. Thank you, Pascas. Uh, October 15th, 1941... Um, the second Moscow watch factory was evacuated because Moscow was being uh, invaded. So remember, this, the Moscow, the second Moscow watch factory, they're making ordnance, they're doing all this stuff. Uh, Moscow's being invaded. You know, everyone evacuate. Oh, wait, just so you guys know, we got to move all this shit too. We got to move everything out of this factory because A, we need to keep making ordinances, fuses, and timers, and B, the Germans cannot, the Nazis, I apologize, cannot get uh you know this stuff so uh october 15th um i think the funny thing that i read is that all the workers came into work that day and they were told that day hey we gotta get the fuck out of here so the second moscow watch factory had to evacuate they packed up all the equipment for their ordinances and to make all of the fuses and the timers into like about about there's this purported number of approximately 170 trucks um, but what's really important to keep in mind is that included with these ordnance materials and these fuse timers and these things to help the World War II effort in Russia, uh, they also took the machines to make watches. They also took the watchmaking you know, uh, capabilities outside of the factory because they were still technically making them. They were still making those little Type 1 pocket watches for like officers in the field to like, you know time shit or whatever. I'm not like a military person, so I don't know. So basically, they packed all the trucks, packed the ordinances, packed all the munition materials, which was important, but then as an afterthought, also just happened to include the stuff to make the Type 1 movement. And they decided to move everything 500 miles east to uh, a small city at the time called Kistopol. 
Kistopool. I never know how to say it. C-H-S-T-O-P-O-L, which is a small town in the Tartar region, 500 miles east of Moscow. The town is located right next to uh, a river, the Kama River. Um, All the equipment that was packed on the trucks was put onto boats, and the boats were supposed to come down the river and to Pakistopol, unload, and that's where all the people, that's where all the workers were going to be. It was way out of the way. It was it was far as hell from Moscow. They could still do what they needed to do, build all the stuff. Uh, the only problem is they tried doing this in winter, so the, the, the river froze. The river froze, and all the boats and shit were trapped um, at a town further up north called Kazan, K-A-Z-A-N, or at least like you know, in, in English, that's how you would spell it. Um, all the equipment was trapped there. So all the workers from Second Moscow Watch Factory are in Kistopol, but all their shit is stuck, you know, several or maybe a hundred miles or so up north in in uh, in, in Kazan. Uh, eventually, they were able to get not all of the stuff, but some of the stuff to Kistopol, and they were able to get everything, all the munitions making material set up in this old uh, distillery. I'm not even making this up. In this old uh, distillery, and so they started again making ordinances and munitions material. And remember, these are all Moscovites. These are all folks who are from Moscow who are in this small ass city. Throughout the natural course of just you know working in this small city, they also started to train the uh, townsfolk. They also basically conscripted them. Hey, help us make ordinances on the shit we brought here from Moscow. Uh, let's do it. And so they started doing that. So they trained the, the, the people how to you know, make fuses, make timers, make all this mission stuff. More importantly, more relevant for all of us here at the Two Book Watch Knobs, they also trained those townspeople in how to use the Type 1 equipment to make the Type 1 pocket watch, to make clockworks. So they did that. 1945, um, the war was over, you know. Um... Oh no! Wait, I got I I I got to back up. Once the German army uh, was pushed out of Moscow, the second Mos- Moscow watch factory was relocated to Moscow, to the capital. So they left some of the equipment. They left some of the capabilities to make ordinances and, and things like that in Kistopol, and they took a lot of it back to Moscow, and basically two different places kind of operating as the second Moscow watch factory, although I think technically in Kistopol at this time it was called Factory 835, which sounds like super ominous, like they're making like aliens or some shit there. Um, they did their thing. They were uh, you know, supporting the war effort. Uh, 1945, war was over, and there's no need for ordinances or for any of this stuff, you know, which is great because now the people in Moscow can just go back to what they were doing. However, at this point in time, it's been like, it's been like 10 years. The people in Kistopol essentially created their entire economy around creating ordinances and supporting World War II. So um, as soon as the war effort was over and there's no need to create ordinances, they were like, okay, well, fuck, what the hell do we do? What do how do we support our town? Yeah, let's just make some watches. All the watch equipment's still here. That's basically what they just started doing. They just started making watches with all the watch equipment that they left because at the time when uh, the second Moscow watch factory returned to Moscow, the Type One equipment was, I mean, quote unquote, old, and it wasn't really a priority to bring back to the capital. So they just left it in the city. 
Um, and that's what these people, the townsfolk, if Kisipal did, they basically started working on these machines. And um, over the course of about 20 years, they were making watches and they were making really, really good watches. Uh, very quickly, these watches that they're making out in Kistapol earned a reputation for being really shock resistant, for being like um, really reliable, you know, uh, water resistant-ish. You know, obviously not waterproof, not until 1967 or slash 1968. But basically, um, they were really making a name for themselves. However, for a long time, they were just called Factory 835. Or, yeah, 835. I apologize if I said 53 before. I think it's 835. However, in 1961, that thing I mentioned happened. That thing where the guy did the thing. <laughs> the guy right here, the, the time, 1961, Yuri Gagarin went up in space on a washing machine with 35 bottle rockets attached to it. Um, and the, the Soviet Union saw this as a huge opportunity to, to finally be have pride in, you know, their country and their government. I mean, just bearing in mind, less than a hundred years ago, they had people dying of fucking famines. Now they were the first place to send someone into space. Space, man. No one knew what was going to happen in space. Could have been like dogs up there, something like that. Oh, actually, no, there was a dog up there. Poor dog. Poor Laika. Um, I'm getting distracted. I'm very tired. Uh, so in 1961, Jurgen went up in space, went up on the Vostok One, and uh, to kind of commemorate their pride for that, Factory 835 changed its name and it was officially designated as Vostok. So that's how Vostok got its name. Vostok only became Vostok because Second Moscow Watch Factory had to flee German invasion. They were making ordinances and ammunition and fuses and timers for World War II and Kistopol. Then they just left. Then the townspeople of Kistopol were just like, well, now do we do? And they just started making watches with machinery. They left. They did that for 20 years. They were awesome at it. 1961, Yuri Gagarin's spaceship was called the Vostok 1. Vostok called themselves uh, Vostok. Uh, and they started doing that in 1962. So Vostok didn't become Vostok until 1962. Excuse me. And it was also around this time where you started to see... Okay, so technically, okay, I got confused. Vostok started appearing on the dial in 1962, but the name wasn't officially changed to Vostok until 1969. And it wasn't around, it wasn't until around 1969 um, that the Vostok Amphibia, you know, basically was uh, was created. But before the Vostok Amphibia, and this is the was one of the one of the top five watches we should all be aware of, um, there was the Vostok Commander Ski, which is. The, the commander ski is really weird in that a lot of people, I guess, don't really... When people see the commander ski, they see the really weird-looking ones they started making in, like, like the 80s and 90s. They're, like, crazy-looking bezels, and they're all weird-looking. I, I, I think that's a disservice because the early commander skis are fucking awesome. They're very... Um, They're very, like, military field watch almost inspired. You know, big numerals, very clean dials. Usually they had, they had a red star on them because the Russian red star. Um, they were operating on the, ew, the 2209 movement. The 2209 caliber is also what the original Vostok Amphibia came out with. But then the Commander Ski, uh, which I guess was supposed to be for officers, um, started coming out in the, oh God, I write it down, 2114? I'm Rod Burgundy. Yeah, 2214. There you go. 2214 slash 2234 calibers. The 2234, I think, is awesome because I'm pretty sure it was one of the first hacking uh, 
movements, you know, in the Soviet Union. Send me your hate mail if I'm wrong. I don't care. Um, so that history of Vostok, I just wanted to share that to let you know. <laughs> uh, 1965, I think, was the first commander ski. And that's the third watch that we should all be aware of within Russian neurology. And then the fourth watch, the Vostok Amphibia, didn't come around. And I think they were prototyping it in like 60, 1967 and 19, uh, 1968. Um, Commander's uh, Commander Ski and the uh, Amphibia. So, fuck, who else is tired? To recap, it's the Type 1. It's the first watch that the Soviets were ever able to make with the help of Deberhampton in Canton, Ohio, 1930. Uh, jumping to 1959, the Strela 3017, the first Soviet chronograph that they were able to reliably make in an appropriate quantities. There were chronographs before that, but Strela 3017 was the first. Um, and then they stopped using 3017 in the 70s when the Polyot 3133 uh, was really... Um, was, was was created and the pull up thirty one thirty three is based off the value seven seven thirty-four. And uh, it's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, type one, first Moscow watch factory, first Moscow watch factory, still at three zero one zero, three seven three zero one seven, sorry, three zero one seven, and then uh, the other two, the Vostok Commanderski and the Vostok Amphibia, just because they represent um, cool World War Two history, uh, a town's ability to fucking just figure out a way to make shit and to contribute um, and and to contribute in such a way that, you know, we still see, you know, Vostok is still around. Vostok didn't go the way many other watch brands. Um, it's a very complicated reason as to why, but basically when the Soviet Union fell, Vostok was still able to be Vostok because a lot of the workers, cause remember, this is, this is far fucking east. This is, this, is, this, is not, this is nowhere near Moscow. A lot of the workers, I think, were from Lithuania. And so um, the Lithuanian workers, uh, when Vostok, when the government fell, they basically just owned the factory, so they just kept doing what they did. Um, but that's why Vostok's still around today. So yeah, uh, the Type 1, first, watch first Moscow Watch Factory, the Strela 3017, first Moscow Watch Factory, and the Vostok Commanderski, uh, I, I'm partial to the Commander Ski 2234 just because of that booming. I, I love I love that. I think that's so fucking cool. Um, and then also the Vostok Amphibia, you know, the early ones came out with the 2209. I have I have a couple examples. I have uh, I'm partial to the Tano case. It's really cool. It's just this big block of steel. It's really fantastic. Uh, go and check out our History of the Vostok Amphibia uh, podcast episode if you want to learn more about that because surprisingly well documented the creation of that watch. Um, there's one more watch in the final few final few moments while I have your guys' attention there's one more watch um, that I think wor is worth mentioning that everyone should be aware within Soviet urology and by now you guys have probably guessed it and the two book watch knobs are probably partially to blame for this but um, the fifth watch that everyone should at least be aware of in regards to the history uh, within you know Soviet Union uh, vintage urology, it's the Riketa Big Zero. Uh, I'm holding mine in my hand. Uh, I got this a couple years ago. Oh, man, 2000. Fuck, 2015, 2016. So well, not 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 a couple years ago. It's been a few years now. But uh, the Riketa Big Zero is really cool. Riketa's story is that 
it's interesting, and we talked about this. I think I did a History of Raketa episode where I just talked about all of this stuff. So if you want the full version, which is fucking super interesting, go and check that out. But basically, the headline is that Raketa is operating St. Petersburg, which is, oh God, if Vostok, <laughs> if Vostok is southeast of Moscow, Petersburg is like northwest of Moscow, but not as far distance as uh, Moscow to Kistopol. Uh, Moscow to St. Petersburg is not super, super far. However, technically, Raketa is operating in the oldest factory, basically, in in, in Russia. It was started by, oh God, it was Peter the Great. It was in the 1700s. <laughs> I think it was Peter the Great. That's great. That's great, Peter the Great. Yeah, it must have been. So Peter the Great... Um, started uh, uh, the the factory that would eventually become come to be known as Raketa. Um, for a long time, it was called Petro Petrovoretz. I never know how to say it. Petrovoretz. So basically, they were started in the 1700s. They were started in the 1700s um, on that space, the same space where Raketa is now, to process and craft gemstones into cool shit. So like... Um, Remember, this is 1700s. So this is pre-Red uh, Revolution, where aristocrats are still opulently decorating palaces and doing all this stuff while the serfs are like, you know, dying and shit. Uh, Petrovoretz in the 1700s. I don't know if it was called that back then, but that's what I'm going to call it now, just for the ease of my own mind. They were making stuff out of gemstones, like vases, um, cool sculptures, like little just things, just but really beautiful precision work. I mean, the, the people there, like they knew what they were doing, and the factory was started specifically to process gems. That is relevant because um, as Russia began began to become uh, industrialized and everything, you know. Precision instruments back then, they needed bearings. So when, and I'm sorry, this is redundant information for anyone listening, but just generally in neurology, if someone says, oh, that's a 17 joule, you know, movement, the jewels they're indicating are bearings. So now these days, it's just synthetic jewels. It's just synthetic, like, because you have to, because you can't have metal rubbing on metal. That's fucked up. Um, you have to have some sort of material in there that's self-lubricating. And so, you know, uh, that's what the jewels are. Like, like I said, most of the times these days, it's just synthetic. But back then, they needed to be real jewels. They needed to be real gems. And so uh, Petrovoretz and St. Petersburg, here are these guys. They know how to make gemstones. They know how to create like precision, precision jeweled items. They're making our jewel bearings for our precision instruments. And that's what they did. That's what they did until the Nazis burned it down, like you do, during World War II. So, remember when I said in 1935, LIP technology was purchased? That same technology was then utilized in 1945. So, 10 years after LIP, the LIP, the fr there was two waves of LIP technology that was purchased. The first one was 1935, but then another one happened at some other point. But 1945, Petrovoretz... I, it's, let's just say it was the 40s because I, I could have my dates wrong. After World War II, Petrovoretz, um, the factory in St. Petersburg, it was rebuilt. Um, but instead of them going back to just making precision jewels, you know, remember the 40s and the 50s were like, like the heyday of Soviet urology in that it was like them hitting the ground running. 
Um, the quote-unquote golden era after you know Yuri Gagarin's space flight, you know that's in the fifties and the in, the in the in like the late fifties and the sixties and everything like that. Eighties uh, and nineties, it was just it was you know nothing really cool happened. I mean, it's cool stuff happened. I'm being facetious, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, what was I saying? Yes. 1945, Petrovoris was rebuilt, but instead of them just doing precision instruments or just jewels again, they took lip technology, retrofitted it, and they said, okay, you're making watches now. And um, one of the watch brands that, uh, you know, Riketa made was um, was Pobetta. So Pobetta, like I said, Pobetta is one of those brands that was made by multiple watch factories, but, but, but Pobetta specifically is important for Riketa because there was a caliber of movement that lip had uh, sold the technology and patents to to you know uh, for sold the technology and patents for to to you know the Soviets and the specific moon was the Lip R25/26. There's there's a difference between the two of them, but they're very similar. So it's the Lip R25/ Lip R26. It is that movement which becomes the basis for one of the most prolific <laughs> Soviet movements, uh, in my opinion. Um, of all time, it's the movement that's in my big zero. Um, the lip R2 slash R2, or the, 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 slip, the, the, the lip R25 slash, you know, 26 uh, was the basis for the Raketa 26, you know, caliber family of movements. So it's, I think it's 263 and then 269, which is the really popular one. But the 26 caliber of movements was iterated on and just built on so much that they did everything so anytime if you guys have ever seen those Raketa perpetual calendars that's a 2-6 movement if you've ever seen the Raketa 24-hour arctic dial that's a Raketa 2-6 movement so um that lip technology is basically what allowed you know Raketa to to have its own kind of family of uh movement calibers which were really really fucking cool uh however Raketa didn't get its name Raketa until 1962, so that's one year after Gagarin. And remember, Raketa means rocket, so in the same vein that Vostok named themselves Vostok because of the Vostok 1, you know, shuttle washing machine, uh, Raketa named themselves, you know, Raketa. And Raketa did the really cool thing in that of all the Soviet watch brands that existed, a lot of them were um, still doing things by hand, and they were still, and because of that, they didn't have a lot of room for creativity. They didn't have a lot of room to be creative with their dials, or whimsical with their designs, or, you know, just creative in general, because they had to spend all their time, like, doing everything by hand. Raketa was one of the first brands to do something that, uh, the rest of the European horology sort of, uh, space saw as just a sin. The most incredible sin a watch manufacturer could could do, Riketa automated, <laughs> Riketa automated their factory. So a lot of the stuff that went into the, you know, the, the, the cases and like, as I punch my microphone, and the movement and shit like that, uh, Riketa was able to automate, which then allowed them to be more creative. That's why Riketa dial designs are usually way more fun. And just way more whimsical um, and unique than uh, other Soviet watch brands. Um, obviously, the exception with that is Vostok. In the 80s, Vostok went kind of crazy. Um, that's when you had watches like, or like the late 70s and 80s. That's when you had watches like the Scuba Dude and you had the Red Star Tank and um, like the Parachuter. 
uh, on the dial. But those were all military-inspired. Because the, the idea with Vostok is that in the 60s, they got a contract to, to be the official watch provider for the USSR Ministry of Defense. And so, you know, the idea is that, like, oh, you know, doing, like, military-ish inspired watches. But Raketa just did cool watches. They just did fun uh, watches. And so it was that environment in which some of the early examples of the Raketa Big Zero uh, came around. The Raketa Big Zero is really cool. It's very fun. It's a very, very unique watch. People either love it or they hate it, but you can't deny it's a watch that you have to be aware of, you know, within Soviet, uh, uh, Soviet urology. The, um, there's different stories around why this watch was created. In the, I, I'm, I'm over, I'm over time right now, which I didn't expect to, to do. But whatever, you guys got to be talking, so it doesn't matter. But there's two stories right now. One of them I think is true. The other one I think is bullshit. I'll tell you the bullshit one first. The first story in which people people say the the first the story which people use to justify the the design of the Big Zero is that so if you look at the Big Zero, the numbers at twelve, three, six, and nine are huge. But the number at 12, which should be a 12, is just a big zero. It's just a big motherfucking zero. Hence the name, you know, big zero. Um, Mikhail, Mikhail Gorbachev was doing an interview. I think he was doing an interview in, like, fucking Italy or some shit. Um, and he was wearing, supposedly, take this with a grain of salt. John, take this with a block of salt. He was supposedly wearing the uh, Raketa Big Zero. The journalist saw his watch and said, oh, that's really interesting and, and you know, unique. Uh, unique watch you know what's the story behind it or something like the, the the stupid reporter if this is true indicated there was something interesting about the big zero that Gorbachev was supposedly wearing so Gorbachev said like oh you know uh, when the rest of the world you know starts over you know they start over from 12 but when the so but, but, but when you know when when Russians when the Soviet Union starts over we start over from zero um which is like the joke. So the hand goes around the clock and instead of starting at over at 12, you're starting over again at zero and you're drawing all these like interesting analogies and jokes between the 1917 revolution and everything like that. So I think, I think it's bullshit. I don't, I, I, I think that's just dumb. That just doesn't make any sense to me. There's nothing else about this watch to indicate that. I mean, it's really cool. It's a cool story. I'm not going to say it's not a cool story and I'm not going to say it's not witty. I don't think it's the case. Uh, the second story, the second uh, prevailing theory, which I think is more likely that people say, you know, is the idea behind the design of this watch. It's um, it's for people who are hard of seeing. Uh, at the time, there were other watches around for people with visual impairments. Uh, Raketa actually used to used to make one. Um, I think there was another brand as well. I can't remember the name, but basically, it's um, it's it's a, it's it's a, it's it's not exactly a Braille watch. But the watch that I'm talking about, which was for visual impaired people, you could flip the crystal off and you could feel like the hands and the uh, dial with your fingers and you can, and the, everything was raised so you could tell like what the three felt like and what this, and the hand was over here and blah, blah, blah. So um, it's not out of the realm of possibility that the big zero was created for people who had visual impairment issues, but who didn't who could still r rely on sight to an extent. They didn't have to flip the crystal up and you know feel the hands and all that crap. So I subscribe more to the second theory. I think I think it's the second story behind the Raketa Big Zero. That's why it was made. It was made for people with visual impairment, but not that impaired. You know what I mean? So so that was about 75, 75 years of history. And then uh, the, the, the Big Zero came out in like the 80s. 
That's right. The Big Zero came out in about the 80s. And so some other interesting things happened in the late 80s and then into the early 90s, just before the fall of the Soviet Union. However, a lot of it was just... Um, Around that time, it was very clear the government wasn't going to work, so there weren't that many cool things uh, that are really worth mentioning or that I would want to tie to a watch that you guys you know, should should know about. So to recap, if anyone's still listening, the five vintage Soviet watches that you should be aware of, whether you like vintage Soviet watches or not, you should be aware that these watches exist just so you can be informed. It's the first Moscow fact, first Moscow watch factory type one, which was built off of the Duber Hampton uh, pocket watch based out of Canton, Ohio. Shout out to Canton, Ohio. If anyone listening lives in or around Canton, Ohio, it, was Duber Hampton like a well-known name? I don't know. I, I know nothing. I know nothing. I think that's the, the headline here. Hold on. I've got to move my cat. Here, my love. Sorry. <clears throat> uh, let me see. So that's the first watch that you should be aware of. The second watch you should be aware of in the same vein as being a great first is the 1959 Strela 3017. They made them for about 15 or 20 years, I think. No, no, no. About, about six years. I take it back. Made it for about uh, no, that's like 10 years. Made it for about 10 years. Um, the first reliable, able to be mass-produced, quote-unquote mass-produced um, Soviet chronograph. The chronograph was something they just couldn't nail down for a long time. Um reliably until the Strela 3017, which is based off of the Venus 150-152, which is a cousin to the Venus movement that ended up in the Chinese seagull chronograph. So interesting tidbit of history there. Uh, the other two watches that you should be aware of um, within vintage Soviet horology is the Vostok Commanderski. The first Vostok Commanderski is actually that watch which got Vostok the commission to be the official watch supplier for the USSR Ministry of Defense. That's how robust and well-known this watch was in terms of shockproofness, dustproofness, water, not waterproofness, water resistance. Like, you know, you could you could grab a quarter out of a fountain and it'd probably be fine or whatever you know, people do when their watches get wet. I'm not entirely sure. But the Commanderski, I think people need to be, pay way more attention to. The early ones are fucking awesome. If you're looking for a no-bullshit, really cool-looking, vintage-inspired not even inspired, vintage, uh, military-ish watch, look for old commander skis. Also, really cool, if you can find a, um, if you can find one of the commander skis that they actually commissioned to uh, people who lived on the, in or around the bases. Uh, so they had these, it's actually similar now, um, you know, certain shops will sell military equipment just for people like in, you know, in that branch of the military. Same thing. There's a version of the Vostok Commanderski, and there's some amphibious too, which they only sold to employees and family of employees within the USSR Ministry of Defense. It's, uh, again, I don't know Russian, but um, it's going to, they, they call them Zakaz, Z-A-K-A-Z. But like in Cyrillic, I'm going to sound like a fucking idiot, so I'm super sorry if this is offensive. It's like a backwards three, an A, a K, an A, and a backwards three. Uh, so on the dial designation, it'll say, you know, Zakaz Mo, M-O, uh, I think which is in or of, um, you know, C-C-C-P, something like that. So those are the ones that were made. Those are the dials that were made for people on the Ministry of Defense bases. So the commander ski should be on people's radar. Not the ones they made in the 80s and 90s. Those ones are fucking weird looking. So bear that in mind. Uh, and the second watch, uh, the, the fourth watch that you should be aware of is the Vostok uh, Amphibia. 
I can't stress this enough. It's just incredible what they were able to do. The first Soviet dive watch that could hit 200 meters reliably. Um, go and check out our episode where I just talk about that watch for a fucking hour. Uh, and the fifth watch you should be aware of is the Raketa Big Zero, um, which we wouldn't have if it wasn't for Peter the Great, and then the Nazis burning the building down, and then uh, the you know French French uh, watch manufacturer Lip, and uh, apparently possibly people with visual impairment. Those four or five things are what made the Raketa Big Zero uh, possible. Those are the five watches I think are important for you guys to know. Obviously, there are so many more. Uh, you know, Soviet vintage watches that you guys that 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 I'm sure plenty of collectors who listen to the show have been like, dude, you didn't fucking mention blah 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 blah. Like, no, I didn't. These are the five that I think people should at least be relatively aware of. So that is it. Type one, Strelitzer zero one seven, Commanderski, Amphibia, and the Raketa Big Zero. Let me know your thoughts on this week's show. If anyone even fucking stuck around to the end, um, I'm very excited for Michael to come back next week, so I don't have to do this again because this is fucking exhausting. Because I've been talking by myself for an hour and 40 minutes oh my god i guess i'm not alone my cat's here she fell asleep too guys it's okay uh really hope everyone enjoyed the show episode 178 the five vintage soviet watches that everyone should know about uh type one Strelitz 3017 commander ski amphibia raketa big zero really really cool let me know your thoughts on this this week's show if you are also a, a soviet watch collector let me know your thoughts on maybe other watches you think would be cool um also let me know if you guys just like hearing about soviet watches i honestly don't know i can't tell i just i just i'm a younger sibling so i assume no one likes anything i have to say um but if you guys like hearing about soviet watches there's so much more to tell um i've dedicated i've dedicated a pretty significant portion of my life over the past few years to just um being enamored with soviet watches and you know loving them and just being so in love with the idea that hey, we're starting this experimental government. We want to make our own shit. We don't want to rely on other people. That means we got to make our own watches. How can we do that? And, you know, they found a way, man. They found a way to make some really, really cool fucking watches. So excited to hear everyone's thoughts on this week's show. Um, Again, you can jump on the Patreon page if you want to support TBWS. You can jump on our Amazon affiliate link if you want to support TBWS. Also, what everyone can do, like I said before, is just like our stuff on Instagram. Um... Even if you don't like it, just fucking like it, guys. All right, that's just that's basically that's basically what it comes down to. I'm not expecting guys. I'm not expecting anyone to want to do the dishes, but the dishes need to get done. Just 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 hit the picture on Instagram. Just just hit the like button. That's gonna make me feel a whole lot better about myself. Um, or if you have a website or a blog, you can share our link. All that fun stuff. But uh, yeah, hope everyone's enjoyed the show. I'm gonna stop rambling now. And um, if anyone has any questions or follow questions, or if any of this was just fucking confusing, because I'm not gonna lie to you guys, it is incredibly inappropriate for me to try to cram 75 years of history into an hour and 43 minutes now. No, I'm, 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 I got my fucking thing. Actually, no, it's probably on your guys' end. It's probably an hour and 42. Although if I keep hedging, it's gonna be an hour and 43 on your guys' end eventually. So um, any questions, let me know what's up. If this was a cool episode, let me know what's up. If you guys like history-filled episodes, um, there's still so much more to talk about. There's so much more to do. Go and check out the stuff on the website I talked about before, twobookwashknobs.com. I've done several pieces on this. I've done, uh, I, have a, I have a bunch of factory breakdowns on the site. You know, there's, um, there's the Vostok Watch Factory that I've done. There's the first Moscow Watch Factory. 
excuse me, there's um, pre-Soviet Union watches, which kind of is kind of what I was talking about with some of those other, uh, like like Moser, you know, as an example, they were in Petersburg and they had to bug out. Um, and then check out, you know, I had, I've done a history of Rakata episode and all that stuff, and I've done a history of the Vosak and Bibi episode, blah, blah, blah. If this was fun, if this was at all enjoyable, at least as like a break of uh, break of pace, let me know, because there's also plenty of stuff that Michael can talk about, you know, because he, he, he knows more stuff about other things that, than I know. But here, let's do this. It's that, it's, I'm waiting for Michael to like cut me off. This is what happens when Michael's not here, not here to cut me off. It's that sad, sad time. I'm gonna, I guess I can address this to my cat. Yang, my love, should we close it up? All right, it's that sad, sad time. Um, really appreciate everyone's time. Let me know your thoughts on this week's episode. Let me know your thoughts on my picks. Let me know if you have any better picks. With that said, this is Kaz, and you have been listening to Two Broke Watch Knobs. Later.